All right. I'm going to have you turn in your Bible to the last book of the Bible. The book that nobody wants to preach from. But I'm doing it. I don't know why. It's scary. It's stressful. Amen. I want to pray. Usually we read a scripture, but I want to just get into it. So let's pray. Father, we do love you with all of our hearts. We thank you that you love us so much. Not only did you come and die for us, but you left us a beautiful book. You left us a message so that we could understand your ways. And Lord, I pray today that you will open our hearts and as we hear your word, Father, that you will speak to each and every one of us. Not one person that's hearing what I'm sharing right now will not receive something from you today. A word of encouragement, a word of comfort, a word that will strengthen, a word that will challenge, maybe warn, but Lord, that you will speak powerfully into our lives and we will leave this place knowing that you love and care for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. So we're in chapter two. We haven't gone very far. Chapter two, beginning in verse 18, we're at the fourth church. Do you realize that the truly Christian life is designed to impact all of our relationships, all of our activities, It's designed to impact all of our goals, our future, and our total purpose in life. It is all-encompassing. There's not one aspect of this life that God does not want to touch and affect because he's in relationship with us. But you know, often there's challenges in our world to live like God. You know, in other words, God is going to call us, and we're going to see in a moment, to live a holy life. And we're challenged every day. We're tempted every day. We're tempted at school. We're tempted at work. There's other values that are competing. There's other voices that are in our heads. They're competing for our allegiance. Do you realize that? Tremendous pressure. Business practices, friends at school are pressuring us to conform to non-Christian values rather than live in a way that honors God. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Colossae. He says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word and deed. How many think that kind of covers a broad area? Doesn't that cover everything? That we're to live to honor God. Very important. You know, some people start compartmentalizing. Sunday, Monday. Sunday, I'm here to worship God, but Monday, it's back to business. That's called compartmentalization. And you know what? God wants to shatter that in our lives. He wants his life to flow into our businesses, into our marriages, into our relationships, in every aspect of life. You know, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther He was having a problem with the business merchants in his day. And they said, among themselves, the merchants have a common saying. I don't care about my neighbor so long as I have my profit and satisfy my greed. That's kind of a nice statement, huh? Of what concern is it to me if it injures my neighbor in 10 ways at once? That was the common saying. Boy, Luther was really upset about that. He says, there you see how shamelessly the saying flies squarely in the face, not only of Christian love, but of natural law. Luther says, that's disgusting. And he's right, it is, right? We should be, you know, the salt of the earth. We should be the light of the world. We should be the standard bearer of what it means to be a godly person and a godly business person or a godly student, whatever it is, that whatever realm we're in, that you and I should be a standard bearer. We represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And everybody's looking at us and we got to say, hey, you know, we got to pay attention to what in the world we're doing. Mark shared last week, he did a wonderful job of explaining how to live the Christ Christian life in a business environment. That was good. You know, there was a young businessman who took his faith seriously. His name was John Woolman. He opened a tailor shop in New Jersey 
during a time when most of the cotton was done at the expense of the slave trade. And John Woolman was a man of real principle and conviction. You know, he just despised slavery. So he made a decision that he would never purchase any cotton or dye supplies handled by slaves. How many know that could really have an impact on your textile business? Because he's a merchant, he's a tailor. So, you know, some people think, well, how in the world could this guy survive if this is the way he was? But he became so good at what he did that people even would allow him to sew clothes that were made made of sackcloth. Isn't that amazing? In 1759, Woolman, a practicing Quaker, convinced the Philadelphia Quakers to pass the first resolution in the American colonies not to own, deal, or sell slaves. And his argument was simple. Why use God's blessing to buy people captive to chains for personal profit? Now, you know, we could take that. I could take that and just preach a whole sermon on that. Because, you know, we can actually take people captive by the employment we're in. You know, if we're selling alcohol, wouldn't we be doing the same thing? You know, if we're, you know, if we're selling lotto tickets, aren't we kind of doing the same thing? Getting people hooked up into an addiction that's very damaging, not only to that person, but it affects their entire families. I could go on and preach and apply this in many different ways, but I'm not going to do that today. Because I want to move on and talk about a bigger picture. I want to look at God's word to the fourth of seven churches in the book of Revelation, where we discover the pressure that was faced by these believers as it related to a community built on commerce. And don't you think that Christianity has a word to the commercial sector? Doesn't Christianity have a word to the realm of economics? Well, of course it does. Unlike the, you know, just like, sorry, the other churches we've looked at, the message at this church at Thyatira was actually unique to their specific geographical location as well as their past history. And Jesus uses that to speak to them specifically. So I look at that and I say, okay, that's wonderful, Jesus, but how does this word apply to us in the 21st century? Isn't that really the crux of the matter? And so really what I've done is I've reframed this a little bit so that you and I will walk away going, I get it. And so I framed the question this way for us. How are we to live a holy life in a sin-filled world? How many think that's a good question? You know, how can I live a holy life? In other words, what is holiness? Can I just stop here for a minute and maybe explain it? Because I think we have a lot of misconceptions. Some people think holiness is the clothes I wear or what I do and don't do. I'm going to shock you and say it's far bigger than that. Actually, years ago when I was in Bible college, we had a discussion in theology class on the essential nature of God. It was all about his attributes. And theologians have battled for the centuries trying to figure out who is God? And, you know... You know, my, my theolo- theological professor felt like, you know, the essential nature of God was life because life is the most essential thing. But the early theologians said God is holy. And, you know, I used to kind of go along with my professor, but I've kind of shifted to where the older guys are. And I'll tell you why, because I think I have a better understanding of what holiness is. And it helps me understand what they were saying. You know what holiness is? It means other than. It means that God is other than what human beings are in so many ways. Okay, he's other than us. Now, we have to get a hold of that because, you know, I think the earlier peoples, first, you know, before the Jesus coming, people did not relate to God as a human being. How many know that's true? They saw God as being a bit more distant. They saw God as being other than themselves. They didn't, you know, make God in their image. Matter of fact, they usually worship cows and all kinds of stuff, right? But when Jesus came, now we have God coming in the flesh. And so we have a deeper understanding that God, you know, shows us what humanity should look like if they're holy. Because Jesus was the only holy person that ever lived on the planet, fully holy. He was without sin. In other words, he always did the will of God. Wouldn't it be great if you and I always did the will of God? And really, what is sin? It's falling short of the glory or the will of God. That's what sin really is. It's doing our thing rather than God's thing. It's thinking our thoughts rather than God's thoughts and going our ways rather than going God's way. And so really, what God is trying to do is to help us understand that the goal of life is to become holy. That's interesting, isn't it? 
See, some of us, we have a different goal, and that's why we get frustrated sometimes. But when you read Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, it actually tells you what the goal is. You know, it says, all things work together for good. Some of you say, well, yeah, but I've had some bad things happen lately, Pastor. How can those things be good? It says, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And then it goes on to say in the next verse, which is the one we stop, we like reading verse 28, but 29 goes on to give us purpose. It says, so that in order that we might be conformed into the image of his son. So God's purpose for your life and my life is to make us holy. It's to make us like Christ. It's to conform us. It's to make us other than what everybody else is. So when you and I are accommodating to the culture, we are not being holy. We are compromised. We are not really standing out. We're not like those superstars I talked about two weeks, like shining in a world of darkness. You know, I love that imagery in Philippians where he says, you know, like holding the word of God out. Like you were like the stars in the night holding out the word of life. You and I are the hope of a world that is falling apart and fragmenting and destroying itself. We are its hope. And if we lose what we are, we cannot help them. Is that true? Because we become them. And that's a problem. And that's the problem we're going to see in this church. So how can we arise above the compromises of godly values in order to survive in this ungodly world? And so here the least important of the seven cities that Jesus sends a message to. Tyatira was actually a military outpost. It was between the city of Pergamum, which was the imperial city, and I talked about that two weeks ago. And if you want to hear that sermon, it's on a podcast. And then the city of Sardis. And it was really designed to keep two rival dynasties apart. And eventually, you know, Rome took it over. And, uh, and, it, and, and what happened was its, its whole value was supposedly as a military outpost. But you know what's interesting about it? It says the physical outlay of the city was one of weakness rather than strength. In other words, it wasn't designed, I mean, to be picked as a garrison, and yet physically it was located in a poorly defensible place, which is very interesting. So they had to try to do all these things to make it defensible. But eventually it lost its value as a military outpost and it became a great commercial center. And so this is why it now makes sense you know, Tyatira had all of these tradespeople living there. It actually, uh, there were more trade guiles there in Tyatira than any other Asian city. It had wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. They're all thriving. It's a great commercial center. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about a woman in Philippi that God opened her heart. And what did it say about her? She was a woman of purple that came from the city of Tyatira. Lydia. That's where she was from. The city that we're looking at this morning. As a matter of fact, Tyatira was noted for, you know, and I said many of these cities had many temples to many of their gods. But Tyatira's main deity, if I can say it that way, was Apollo. Now, if you know anything about Greek mythology, Apollo was the son of Zeus. He was the son of God. At least that was what he claimed to be, right? He was the son of the chief God. Now notice what Jesus says here in this letter, verse 18 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Tyatira write, these are the words of the son of God. By the way, this is the only time this phrase is used in the book of Revelation, the son of God. And it's used to this church because they had been schooled, growing up, educated, that Apollo was the son of God. And now Jesus writes and says, no, I'm the son of God. Get it straight. Then he goes on to say this, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now I want you to notice, you know, eyes like blazing fire. How would you like to meet somebody? Eyes like blazing fire. We can speak of that in a metaphorical sense. Somebody's really upset. They've got eyes of blazing fire, right? Eyes of blazing fire and his feet are burnished bronze. And you know, I think about bronze in the Bible. It's interesting. I was just reading there this morning. You know, bronze is actually, 
symbolic in the scriptures of the idea of judgment. Because remember in the altar area in the tabernacle, they had two altars, an altar of gold made of incense, that was prayer. But the first altar was of bronze. And what did they do on the altar of bronze? It was the biggest altar. They threw all the animals on there. They offered them up as sacrifices. What are they offering them up for? The sacrifice for sin. So the altar of bronze speaks of judgment on sin. So Jesus is revealing himself as the judge. Now, you know, I don't think we always see Jesus as the judge. You know, we see Jesus as the Savior. Isn't that true? When I think of somebody, you know, Jesus, thank you. You're so wonderful. I I see him in his compassion. That's good. That's part of who he is. Do you know one of the problems we have about seeing God is we only see a part of God. We only see a little bit. You know, remember Balaam and Balak, he goes, I'll take you to another location so you can see a different part of God. In other words, look at God from different angles. You know, maybe you'll come up with a different retort. But you know, God is far bigger than we realize. And, and he's far more complicated. And, there's, and there's, there's a dimension to him that's beyond our comprehension. So he's the most, all at one time, the most compassionate person. But can you imagine falling into the hands of the living God? And you're on the wrong side of him? Like you haven't gotten things straightened out and you're going to be judged for what you did? I'd, I tell you, I'd rather fall into the hands of the most vile human person than to fall into the hands of the living God and I'm going to be judged for eternity by him. Yeah. If you're going to give me my druthers, you know, I'd rather have the mercy of Almighty God. I'd rather not fall into anybody's hands, to be honest. But Listen to what it says in the book of Daniel about Jesus. Remember when he was standing before the high priest and he was being sentenced? You remember that point? And they said, are you, are you the Messiah? The high priest is frustrated. Jesus is not talking. He goes, you say that I am. You know, he says, I am. He basically said, I'm the Messiah. But you know what Jesus does? He quotes from Daniel. And Daniel, it, it's an interesting story because you and I read it. It says, you know, I saw the son of man coming in the clouds. Remember that statement? And we read that and we don't, we don't get it. Because we just think, well, that's neat, you know. Actually, every Jewish person at that moment knew exactly who's... The only person coming in the clouds is God, and he's coming to judge. And Jesus says, I'm coming to judge you. And they're the guys that are judging him. No wonder they got upset. And they crucified him over that. It says in Daniel chapter 10, when he had a vision of God, listen, his body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. There we get a picture. See, where's John getting this vision from? Well, he's getting it from Daniel. His eyes are like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. So what we're seeing here is Jesus revealing himself as the Son of God who's coming to judge. We need to understand that. Now, in this fourth message, we see that what we're going to look at is really the purpose of our lives. It's going to zero in on this. Listen to what Peter writes in his letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Then he goes on and says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So there's two things God wants you to know when you turn away from your former life and you're turning to God. Number one, he's saying, turn away from ignorance. And number two, turn away from your former evil desires. You and I cannot live in a sinful condition and think that we have a relationship with a holy and pure God. That does not compute, folks. And the only person that's being deceived is ourselves. We have to address the issues in our soul. And the only reason God doesn't deal with us more severely is because God is giving us space to repent all he's doing. And you know how patient God is? He'll give people a long time. Like I'm reading in the book of Hosea right now, he gave the Israelites hundreds of years, but eventually God said, you guys are beyond incorrigible. I've given you so many opportunities. Now you're going to suffer the consequences of being unfaithful to my covenant. And you know what happened to them? They were destroyed and taken into exile. It's really sad. Sad, sad, sad. And we can see that. So we better pay attention to what's saying. Then he goes on to say, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. In other words, be different than the, the culture around you. You cannot be just like everybody else. You have to be different. Some of you go, well, yeah, but I like to fit in, Pastor. 
I don't like to stand out. Hey, listen, if you're a child of God, you're going to stand out. You're going to just pop. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to pop. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to be like a magnet. The closer you get to Jesus, the more people are going to be drawn to you and to Christ. And on the other side, you know how magnets work. They got a double-edged side to them, you know. I, I put the two together, and sometimes there's a repulsion that's going on. How many have noticed that about magnets? And you know, what happens is people either really like you, or they're really not going to like you. Anybody experience that? They really like you, or they really don't like you. That's normal Christian living. Just like that. Matter of fact, they killed Jesus. So you got to know, if they do that to Jesus, they're not going to be that nice to us as well. We can't be surprised by that. The more I become like Jesus, the more people are going to like me and hate me all at the same time. Then it goes on to say here, for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. In other words, be like me. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. You and I don't fit in. How many feel like, you know, since I've been a Christian, I just don't fit in as well. You know, and then I go to places and there's a whole bunch of non-believers and they're talking about stuff and I'm going, boy, is this sad conversation. I'm not connecting. I don't relate to what's being talked about here. Anybody ever had, had that experience? You just kind of feel like you're left out. Like I'm a stranger. I don't belong here, you know. And then if somebody starts talking about the things of God, immediately I get excited. My soul gets excited, right? It's amazing how that happens. That's because we're wired a certain way. But let me move on to this message because I think there's three important things we need to learn that Jesus wants to address regarding our relationship to holiness. And he, first of all, he wants to commend the holy life. In other words, he wants to encourage us to live a holy life, to be like him. And I want to just say this, maybe in terms that we'll understand better because, you know, these are theological ideas and we don't relate to them. But can I go to the psychological side of this? And I'm going to say it to you this way. I think it's a great thing that people are able to talk about mental illness. I think that's healthy. I think people need to talk about that. And I think people need to address that. Okay, everybody heard that? Having now said that, let me continue on. I say this. The healthier, the more more you deal with the sin issues in your life, the healthier you will be in your mind. Jesus said, I've come to give you a sound mind mind. I've come to deliver you from your anxieties and your fears. In other words, the closer I get to God, I should be getting better mentally. Is this making sense to us? And so God is challenging us to renew our minds. And that's a healthy thing to do. I'm not saying that we don't struggle with chemicals. I get all of this stuff or addictions. But let me just encourage us. Let's get close to God. Let's deal with the sin issues in our life. And your mind will get healthier. As a matter of fact, when I look at the word holy, there's another word that immediately comes to my mind. And it's the word whole. W-H-O-L-E. They can be interchangeable. God wants to make us healthy people. He wants to make us whole. He wants to, you know... Bring these things into our lives. But you know what? If we think that we're going to continue on in our sin and get mentally healthy, take all the drugs you need because you're going to need a lot of them because you're not going to get better. Does everybody hear what I just said? You've got to deal with your minds. And I said it in the first service. I'll say it again. If I was a psychiatrist, and I said it this earlier, I said I would, I would tell people, go to church, worship God. That'll do, good. That'll do good things for your mind. Listen to the word of God. Get it in your system. Okay, you guys are not, you don't know about this, but let's go down. <clears throat> here in Revelation 2.19, here's the commendation or the, or the affirmation. He goes, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, I want to just say something. These guys were true followers of Christ because they didn't just say it, they did it. They were living it. How many see it? It says, I know your deeds. So it's not just that you guys are talking about this stuff. I know what you do. Jesus said, I'm seeing what you're doing. I know you're doing the good thing. I see your love. I see your faith. I see your service. I see your perseverance. And that you're now doing more than you did at first. In other words, you're developing. How many know that's amazing? This is good stuff. This is all what God wants. This is all the right stuff. Theirs theirs wasn't just a faith faith and word, but it was manifest in how they served others. We notice that Jesus affirmed them for their love and faith. Their actions were motivated by love. I love that. 
God's love was compelling them to do what they were doing. Isn't that great? So it's not like, you know, what can I get out of this? I do a nice thing to get something. No, it was, I'm doing a nice thing because I'm just loving people. That's awesome. That's God's stuff. That's what, that's what it means to be holy. See, we think holy means I don't sin. No, well, that's true, but it's more than that. It's how you live your life out to help other people. That's holiness. He's describing it. When we love people, we're serving people, that's expressing holiness. You know, and then it says it was demonstrated by commitment and perseverance. Boy, you know, sometimes it gets difficult to be committed. And it's difficult to persevere. How many say that's true at times? You know, it's easy to tire, to want to give up when things are hard, discouraging, and we don't see positive results. How many have ever had, I'm doing a good stuff, but I'm not getting a lot of encouragement. I want to quit. Nobody ever felt that way? I've had those moments. I like that. You know, that poem by Rudyard Kipling. You know, he says this. He's talking about maturity. And I'm going to just tweak it a little bit because I think there's some good stuff here. He says, if you keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, okay? And when you, it says, and, and if you can trust, and I put God instead of yourself because I think trusting in yourself, you can let yourself down. But if you're trusting God when all men doubt you, when you make allowances for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about and don't deal in lies or being hated and don't give way to hating, and if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. And if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings, not lose the common touch. If neither foe nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. And if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distant run. In other words, you don't act on how you feel. You're not responding emotionally to that moment of pain. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Very powerful. What he's saying is, this is maturity. And you know, he's describing a lot of things that I could just put Bible verses behind and say, yep, that's what it's like. It's exactly it. It's perseverance. And so I want to just stop here and say, this church was exhibiting this. So how many go, wow, I'm impressed. Are you impressed with this church? I am. This is awesome stuff. This is good stuff. But let me move on. You know, I'm not going to stop there. Secondly, he brings correction when we violate his holiness. Do you know that it, it takes a lot of love to correct people when they're wrong? See, some of us, we think, you know, tolerating people's bad behavior is loving. See, that's what our culture's teaching us. And folks, I want to give you a different word. I'm going to redefine two words for you. I think there's a difference between forbearance and tolerance. Okay? Forbearance means I long, I'm long-suffering. I'm putting up with something that's difficult for me. Okay? I'm forbearing. I'm being long-suffering. That's a good thing. That's a fruit of the Spirit. You follow that? But let me just point out, what is tolerance? Tolerance means I'm just, you know, I'm just letting things go. I'm not, I'm not doing anything about it. I'm letting live and let live. Isn't that the maxim of our culture today? Live and let live. Tolerate everything. And yet, tolerance is leading to the unraveling of our culture. It's destroying us. Now watch what's happened here in this verse. Jesus is going to say, you know, I love you guys so much, I'm going to correct what's wrong with you, in spite of all the good things you're doing. And you know, it's always hard to correct somebody. You know, they've got 15 good things and one bad thing, and you're going to sit down and go, I've got to correct this person for the one bad thing. Look at the 15 good things they're doing. And what is our temptation? Don't say anything, right? Come on, let's be honest. You know, we don't want to deal with this, but Jesus zeroes in on the one thing because he said, I can't let this go because it's so damaging to your life. I've got to talk about it. So he zeroes in on it. And what does he say here in verse 19? He said, let's read it. I know your deeds, your love, your faith. Okay, we've gone through all that. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. <laughs> nevertheless, okay, but, but, there's one thing. 
You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. How many say that sounds pretty strong? How many go, I don't, you know, this doesn't sound like Jesus, Pastor. Yeah, but my Bible is red letter edition. It's the words of Jesus. Actually, I'm studying Hosea right now. Boy, it is intense. It is intense, folks. We, 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 we just read what we want to from the Bible. No, I got to read the whole text. It says here, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Wow. Is that powerful? Look at the next verse. He goes, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. So he's saying this is a very critical issue. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what in the world is going on? Well, I'm convinced they're departing from a standard of holiness. And I'll explain in a moment what it means. But I want to just quote C.S. Lewis, because I was reading this this morning. And it'll show you how profound it is. How many here in this room, you hate to be misrepresented? Anybody do not like being misrepresented? Does anybody like to be quoted out of context? Does anybody like to, does anybody appreciate that somebody's painting a whole different picture of you than who you really are? How many really like that? Raise your hand. You really like that. None of us. Okay, why would God like to be misrepresented? Now, the only way you can have a true view of who God is, this is going to really touch our hearts. When we deal with sin in our lives, the closer we are to God, the more we're addressing sin in our lives, the better and less distorted our view of God. And the more we sin in our lives, the more distorted view of God we develop. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't think God is like that. You know, you know, I'm just living with somebody. I don't think God's like that. I'm going, distorted view of God. What you're really doing is revealing yourself, not who God is at all. See, the closer you get to God, the less distorted a view you have of God. You say, how do you come up with this stuff, Pastor? Well, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis now. You'll see. The instrument through which you see God is your whole self. This is Lewis writing from Mere Christianity. And if a man's self is not kept clean and bright, his glimpse of God will be blurred like the moon seen through a dirty telescope. That's a pretty graphic analogy, isn't it? We're looking at God and we're going, I'm seeing him through my dirty life. And so I'm seeing him differently than what he really is. You know, I'm going to say this. A lot of people have a distorted view of God because maybe you had a distorted view of a father figure abusive person, so you think God's abusive. Or you, you know, All these viewpoints we come up with with God. How do you change that? You get into the Word of God. You just keep listening to the Word of God until finally you go, okay, I'm getting a picture of what God is like. And He's unlike what a lot of people think He's like. That's the problem. We don't know Him well enough. He's given us a, he's, he's given us a letter. He's saying, hey, this is what I'm like. He's telling us, but we don't spend time trying to figure it out. I'm going, hey, it's pretty important we get to know what He's like. All right, now, I'm going to flip to the next thing, and you're going to see this. What I'm about to say, you need to understand very clearly. Lewis is not against people. He's against institutions and systems that are wrong. Now, watch what he says. That's why horrible nations have horrible religions. Let's unpack that for a minute, because I think it could be really misunderstood. What he's basically saying is, Nations that have a distorted view of God become distorted. Nations who have a distorted view of God, it's not, it's the religious system that they're in eventually distorts the person. So Lewis is not against the people, he's against the ideology. Does everybody follow this? Because, you know, a lot of times we see, you know, a structure, a system, and we begin to attack the people. Listen, Jesus died for every person. So we're not against people here, folks. 
But we are opposed to ideologies. You say, what's an ideology? It's the ideas, the, the religious ideas, the philosophies of people. And it's what keeps people in bondage. And so then he says this, they have been looking at God through a dirty lens. And now all you need to do, if you really want to understand uh, you know, what a, what a religious system is really like, go to its roots. You know, when people start talking to me about these other religious systems, you know, they say, oh, all religions are the same, Pastor. I go, excuse me? You should go down to where they originate and then take a look at the fruit of what's going on there. And you take a look at the, the lack of freedom in those situations by different people that are being oppressed in those situations. And then you come back to me and say they're all the same. I'm sorry, I have a problem with that. It's not the same, okay? So we need to do a little, you know, North Americans, we're a little naive. There's a lot of naivety in our culture today. People are saying a lot of stuff they know nothing about. Nothing. And we think that we're really smart and we're really tolerant and we're really self-destructing is what we're doing. Because we have a distorted view of humanity and we have a distorted view of God and we're living out our lives. And you know what? We're going to experience terrific carnage in the days to come because we're going to experience the fruit of our ways. And, you know, I, 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 I hate that. It's distressing me to see some of this stuff. It says here, God can show himself as he really is to real men. And that means not simply to men who are individually good, but to men who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, and showing him to one another. You know, he goes on to say, for that is what God meant humanity to be like, like players in one band or organs in one body. In other words, you and I can't do this alone. We have to do this together. We, we actually, everyone in this room, you're revealing the nature of Christ in some measure. If you're a child of God, you bring something to the equation. You do. You just don't, some of us may not understand what we're bringing. But I can look around this room and I can see some people who you're filled with generosity and I see Christ's generosity through you. Or I see Christ's forgiveness through others. I see compassion from some. I see perseverance in others. You know? I see people that want to stand up for what's right. Those are all things that are reflecting through you. And we, we, you know, we all bring different things. But as we come together, you know, it's like a symphony orchestra. You don't just have one instrument. You know what makes a great symphony is you have all these instruments. Isn't that amazing? And we're sitting there and all of a sudden we have a score in front of us. That's the Bible. You know, I just walk up and I go, Jesus, what page are we playing from today? He goes, turn to page such and such. Okay, we're going to play. And everybody plays their instruments. And it sounds different. And you know, some of you go, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm the percussion session. I say, great. And then there's moments, you know, we have to tone down percussions. How many know that that's true in an orchestration? And sometimes the strings come alive and then sometimes they come down. How many appreciate it? Maybe you guys don't like music the way I do. I just, I love, I love it when you have all this orchestration, you know? Yeah. See, we, don't, we have all this digital music today. We can't really evaluate it. But, you know, listening to like the oboists and the violinists, the celloists, they're all playing, you know, and there's different parts. And, and, you know, it creates a mood. How many have been there? And all of a sudden there's these heightened moods that are being played. And there's, you know, I'm going, wow, this is so amazing. And somebody's playing away and they're all going at it. I'm going, God is conducting an orchestration in his church. And all we have to do is say, Lord, just help me to follow along the score of music. Oh, there's my part. And I start playing my part. And then it says stop. And I stop, you know. It's amazing. It's amazing what happens when we do this. But let me move on here because I need to close. They were tolerating a false prophetess which was misleading Christ's servants. You know, first of all, we need to understand something. It was not that she was a woman that they were upset about, okay? <laughs> That's a misinterpretation of the text. You know, some people would say that. I like what Earl uh, Palmer points out. It's important to note, first of all, that the issue in this text is not the correctness of women as prophets in the first century church. The New Testament church had women prophesying. As a matter of fact, it says, In the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your young men and young women shall prophesy. Let's get out of this sexist nonsense that we get into sometimes. It's nonsense. What the problem was is what she was saying. And what was she saying? That's the issue. Well, it was her message. You know, 
as he says here, sex is not the basis for the judgment. By calling the false prophetess Jezebel, Jesus was saying to her, was really revealing her true spiritual identity. That was not her name, but the destructive nature of her teaching to the church. So let me ask the question, who is Jezebel? Well, you got to go back in the Old Testament to find the story. She was married to a northern Israeli king named Ahab. And the Bible says about Ahab that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than any of all, on all of the kings of Israel that went before him. So Ahab was not noted for being a good guy. Number two, a little later on, it says, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. In other words, she was speaking into his life to do evil. And that's the imagery we're getting in the book of Revelation. So it's, you know, it's not a spirit, folks. He's naming what's going on here. He's basically saying this. She's teaching the wrong thing. And so what was she teaching these people? Well, remember we talked about all of these guiles, these trade guiles? Most of them had patron gods. Okay, everybody follow this? And so if you were going to operate in your, if you were a you know, person working in linen or whatever, dyes or whatever, you had to be a part of this guile, this like a trade union. They were all part of these unions, right? We think trade unions are new. No, they've been around for a long time. The only problem was they all had patron gods and they had to pay homage to these gods or they couldn't operate in their trade. Now, how many can see this as a problem? If you can't operate in your trade, you're kind of an independent operator. It's a really a tough thing to make a living in that community. So she was saying, no problem, do it. Just, you know, you can worship these gods, but you know, you know, Jesus is the true God. So there's this little synergism happening, right? You got to get along with the world pastor. You got to compromise a little bit to get ahead. That's all she was saying, you know? And, you know, not to do this meant, Huge economic loss. And Jesus is basically saying, listen, you can't have it both ways. You cannot serve God in money. See, we have to hear that in our culture today because that's a huge issue in our culture because we make compromises when it comes to our financial security. Come on now. It's a great temptation. Nobody's tempted. You know, let me check your pulse. You know, of course we're tempted. We know that it takes money to live. The issue is, where are you putting your trust? In money or in God? That's the issue. Now, let me just say this about what was happening. It says that she was seducing him and they were committing sexual immorality. So immediately we think, oh, they were all having sex. No, you're missing the point. When you read the Old Testament... Israel was God's people and they were in covenant with God and God used the analogy of marriage. Okay? I'm studying the book of Hosea right now. I'm really into it. I'm trying to figure out the Hebrew language. It's tough. But here's what the point. The point is that God was saying, Israel, you're prostituting yourself. You've been unfaithful to me. You violated your covenant. You know, you've been immoral. That's the language God uses with his people. Are you following And what God is saying is when you and I accommodate to the culture and we make these compromises, we are actually being unfaithful to God. We are violating our covenant, contractual covenant, and our relationship to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How many think this is kind of serious? I mean, if you were married to somebody, they started cheating on you. How many think that creates a little problem in your marriage? How many can see that might create a little problem in your marriage? Anybody see that? How many see that? And yet every single day we go out there and we make these decisions that reveal our unfaithfulness towards God. Are you catching the severity of the issue? How many are seeing it? Can you see what he's saying? Do you see why Jesus is saying, I got to correct you on this point because this is so, this is so critical that you get this right. You can't just do this stuff. You have to sit down and say, okay, God, you know, I cannot afford to, you know, to change. And you know what? Sometimes we do it unknowingly. But here Jesus says, I've confronted her and she was unwilling to repent. Do you know what the biggest problem in, the, in, the, in our culture here today is? Here, here's what I'm going to tell you what it is. It's going to shock you. I don't think it's the society that's doing all the crazy things, okay? I get it. They don't know any better. What I'm concerned about is the Christians in the church 
who are saying it's okay to do the things that the Bible says it's not okay to do. That's the problem today. Does everybody get it? That's the real issue. That's what Jesus is speaking about. And so he's not addressing, he's speaking to the church here. He's not addressing the people in Thyatira. He's addressing the Christians. He's saying to them, you're accommodating and compromising yourself and you're being unfaithful to me. And so the church is now divided. It's polarized. There's people faithful to Christ. Notice what it says here. He says, uh, now to the rest of you in Tyatira, now to you who do not hold to our teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'm not going to impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. He's now quoting Psalm 2. Who's he talking about? Talking about Christ. What is he saying? Listen, folks. All authority on this planet belongs to Jesus Christ. Not to our prime minister. Not to our courts. Are you hearing me? It's not to any leader in this world. No human leader has greater authority over our souls than Almighty God. We need to know that. We need to know that. So like when Peter and John come up before the Sanhedrin and they say to them, we don't want you teaching or preaching in this name any longer. They said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You see, you have to understand, when is it okay to be involved in civil disobedience? And the answer is, we must obey those in civic authority until the day they forbid us to serve our God. And that's the day we say, sorry, we'd rather go to jail. We'd rather go to jail. And you know what? I'm going to have a stand this morning because I think we have to prepare our hearts. And you say, how do you prepare your hearts? You've got to stop living an accommodating lifestyle, number one. How many see that? If you and I don't get our lives right with God, how are we going to stand? You know what? The world does not have to beat you and intimidate you if you've already compromised and accommodated. How many see that? It's already happened. You're already defeated. But Jesus said, if you will, you know, trust me and stand with me, he says, I'm going to give you authority. I, I, I don't think this word means power in the sense that we're going to control people. But you know what I think happens? When you and I do the right thing, we have influence. Do you know when you and I do the right thing, even the people who are opposed to us cannot believe we have that kind of courage? You know why? Because that courage doesn't come from us. It comes from God. I notice one thing about my soul. I can be extremely courageous when I'm in the right and a coward when I'm in the wrong. How many can say amen to that? That's true. We just don't have a leg to stand on. But when we know this is the right thing to do, we can say, hey, it's the right thing to do. I'll suffer then because I'm trusting God, right? So just with every head bowed here this morning, I know I'm, I'm just trying to help you understand these messages. See, we think, oh, it's all about the future. No, it's about the present. And actually, the prophetic messages in the Old Testament and even in the book of Revelation were written to that generation, but there's application for today. And so I'm challenging us. You know, my prayer for this congregation is that we'll be true to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, I'm not that interested in, you know, what the world thinks of our church or even what the church world thinks of our church. What I'm interested in is what Jesus thinks of our church. What does Jesus think of us? Because at the end of the day, that's the only one that matters. Isn't that true? He's the only one that matters. And he has every right to judge our lives because he took our judgment upon himself. So just with every head bowed for a moment, say, you know what? I need God's grace to be an uncompromised Christian. I need God's grace to live a holy life. I need God's grace to overcome sin in my life. I need God's grace to do the right thing, to have the courage to do the right thing and not capitulate because everybody around me is doing the wrong thing. How many here say, I need God's grace to do that? And I got my hand up too. You know what I'm saying? God, give me the grace to stand up and do the right thing in a generation of people that 
Even Christians today are turning their backs on God. They are. They don't know it because they're not willing to take the stand and say, I'll do the right thing. I'll say the right thing when God asks me to. I'll stand for what's right. Amen? And I'll tell you something. It doesn't take a lot of people to change the world. It just takes very determined people to change the world. I look at the Bible and I say, Jesus had 12 men and they went out and changed an entire world. Isn't that true? I always say that. We have more than 12 here, guys. That's why we gather together, to look around and say, okay, we're in this together. And we're going to stand together. And that causes great grief to the power of darkness. Is it true? Sure it is. That's why you're going to get attacked. That's why I've been telling you, blessed are you when people persecute you. That's not a bad thing. Jesus says, be happy. That's how they've always treated the people who did the right thing. They treat you poorly. That's how they treated all the, all the true prophets of God. They treated them poorly. Don't, why do we expect that we're going to be the world's heroes? I, I don't plan on being the world's heroes. I just want to be true to God. Amen. And at the end, I want to stand before Jesus. And he said, you know, Paul, you did the right thing. You did what I asked you to do. And my prayer is that you'll do the right thing. That when you stand before the judge of all humanity, he'll say, well done, my precious servant. You did the right thing in a tough time. Just like Jesus commended the few in this city that stood for what was right. Right? We don't have to be nasty about it. We don't have to be unloving about it. Right? We're not against people. Remember that. Just Can you walk away going, I'm not against people. I'm against ideologies. I'm against false religions. I'm against false living. I'm for people. I really love people because I know the false systems and the false religions are binding and blinding and imprisoning people. And that's why I want to stand for what's right. So, Lord, we bow before you this morning. We know that we cannot do this in our own strength. We are all weak. We know that the enemy can bring all kinds of pressure to bear upon our soul. But, Lord, we know that you are greater than the enemy. We know that your spirit is all-powerful. We know that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We know today that you, Lord, are going to raise up a people in this generation that will stand for what is holy and right and loving all at the same time. That's not a contradiction. That's the true reality of love that we stand for what's good and what's healthy and what's right. And Lord, we want people to grow in freedom and in grace and in knowledge of you. So we pray today that we will be unashamed and unmoved. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.